My guest this week is another good friend and celebrity chef, Stephanie Marie. Her life started a bit rocky, but with hard work, perseverance, and a good team around her, she quickly turned things around. She was initially living that Hollywood life, going all over the country, being a personal chef on mega yachts. She has stories from major producers to big-time celebrities to the time she meditated 16 hours a day for 10 straight days, or the time she was driven off a cliff by a drunk driver, broke her back, lay there for six hours. She was paralyzed. She was in a coma for two weeks. Doctors told her she would never walk again. I'm glad to report she's now running her best life. She's got a great story. Here it is. Here I am with Stephanie Marie. Stephanie and I met through a mutual friend. It was actually her cousin. First time I met her, you can tell she wasn't in the right headspace. We were out in Hollywood, and she was living that Hollywood life. But today, I'm happy to report she's in a much better headspace and living her best life. Stephanie, how are you? Wow. <laughs> That's the introduction I get. <laughs> I mean, um, is it not thanks, the truth? Mike. <laughs> It's the truth, as unflattering as that sort of sounded. So, yeah, I am living um, my best life now. Look, I think people that are in that Hollywood life and that scene, as a lot of them don't ever get out of it, and you should be proud of yourself that you did. And you're out there in Seattle, and um, you're, you're doing your thing. I think you're extremely happy. You're in, you're in a good space, a good mindset, and, and life is good, right? Yeah. So that's great. How did you get out of that Hollywood life? Was there was there a wake up call moment? I think LA kind of chewed me up and spit me out. And for the best. At one point um at one point I just woke up mm. and was tired of the concrete jungle and everything that I had based my life upon. So it was kind of a combination of things. It was just, it was it, was it one day or was it one day where you literally woke up and said, I'm done with this, I'm, I'm over it? Was it a conversation you had with a friend or a family member and you decided to get out of here and, and, <laughs> and leave town? Yeah, it was literally one day I woke up and word for word, while I resigned from my private chef position was, I'm so tired of this concrete jungle i'm moving to a 500 acre eco farm in hawaii and i gave away all of my material possessions and left la yeah that's not very la of you good for you and that's the reason why you <laughs> woke up that day because it's yeah 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 that that see here's the thing with la and hollywood and southern california as a whole in my opinion, is that you can't live out there. Like, you have to be in a suburbial area outside of Hollywood, West Hollywood, Santa Monica. I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of those areas because I think a lot of it is from people who are fake, uh, people who are trying to make it, uh, people who are, um, man, I can't even find a parking spot when I go. I, I don't even know what the places are like. <laughs> but it's like, it's there, you know, it's, it's, it's just a bunch of fakeness. And when you get involved in that and you have people around you who are that way 24 seven, it's, it's hard because I feel like whoever we're around, we're going to be like them. Right. And if you're going to be around that, it's, it's a toxic environment. It definitely can be. Yeah. That's profound stuff, Stephanie. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> a, f a few years ago, Let's get into some fun stuff. Not very fun, but very interesting, interesting stuff. A few year, years ago, you broke your back. You were dry, You drove off a cliff. I'm not sure if you were by yourself or with others or if you were driving or not. Tell us about this. So I had been working in Costa Rica, and I was a private chef on yachts. So I was in Costa Rica, and it was right before my 19th birthday. So this was a while ago. Um, I was in the car with a drunk driver, and it's um, kind of like a, you know, that's what happens when you choose to get in the car with a drunk driver. Like, it's very dangerous. And we were out in the mountains um, in Washington State. 
and within a few like we were up there having a barbecue there was five of us um we were kind of celebrating my birthday because it was that coming weekend and when we got in the car to leave the driver was just messing around and we were on an old logging road where we had cut down a chain to get on this road and it was like wrapping around this mountain called crystal mountain and within a few moments of being in the car driver messing around as if he's like in a video game it was i was in the back middle seat and he drove off the cliff and we fell we were it was about um like where we went off there was a patch of trees that caught our fall which was about 20 feet down and if those trees weren't there it would have been like a thousand feet we were at the summit so like it would have been a complete like we wouldn't have been found until spring so the only trees on the side of the cliff right there caught the fall but was the reason why my back broke and so on impact the seatbelt snapped my body in half and the car was upside down and we're hanging in these trees and so like of course we have to get out and I can't move from my neck down Mm. I can't breathe and I could feel there was something seriously wrong with me and a sensation within my body I had never felt ever in my life and I couldn't breathe and I didn't understand like why that was and this and I couldn't even look down to or move my arms to take the seatbelt off and so my friend who was next to me he he was I could tell something was really wrong um with me by the way he was looking and he took the seatbelt off of me which was actually it was actually like cutting through my body and it had severed my kidney my colon my liver and collapsed my right lung so and in addition to breaking my l1 vertebrae so we had to climb up this cliff because who knows how long the car would be there for and he held my hands we said a prayer to whatever god was in our life and he pulled me out of the window and i had to climb 20 feet to the top of the road with a broken back and like body nearly cut in half. It was, um, it was probably the most like traumatizing, but incredible experience I've ever had in my life. Coming that close to dying and just experiencing that is life changing. So, um, it kind of like made me appreciate life in a way that I would never be able to even comprehend without that happening. How are so, you? How are you able to walk, let alone hike, twenty feet? <laughs> At that point, I think. Well, the doctors said it was literally the adrenaline yeah, and pure adrenaline. you know your mind. Yeah, you kind of like survival mode. Mm-hmm. People can do incredible mm-hmm. things. When I got to the top of the cliff, I couldn't pull myself over the top. So they had to grab me and pull me up, and we laid on the logging road. There was five of us. Two of us were really injured. One guy got scalped and broke all of the bones in his leg. Um, so he and I laid on the road um, and for six and a half hours because the driver, who had been more intoxicated than anyone, um, not sure why he was, in, he was even driving, but no one noticed he was more intoxicated until this all happened. But he ended up running 14 miles down the mountain mm. to, before he got help. And so search and rescue came and got me and flew me to a hospital. But I had, um, I had like a few uh, issues with, I was in recovery at the time. So um, I, I, I wanted to maintain my sobriety, which was new. And when I was in the helicopter, I remember like more than anything in this, I remember being in the helicopter and begging the helicopter nurse not to give me morphine because Mm. I was 
at the time unable to have anything like that because I was fighting addiction and alcoholism. And I, I begged him, don't give it to me. I'm sober finally. Don't do it. And he looked at me and rubbed my arm, my right arm, and said, if any time in your life you're allowed to get high, it's right now. Wow. And I was like, oh, God. And without, like, consent, you know, because they were afraid I was going to go into shock because I had been laying on a mountainside with a broken back for six hours. So the refusal of morphine at that point probably, you know, wasn't even realistic, but um, it's what happened. And I remember being in the ICU before I went into a coma. There was a nurse that came in and sat next to me and said, I heard you're a friend of Bill's. And Bill W. is like, you know, the writer, creator of like, AA Alcoholics Anonymous and so that one conversation in the helicopter to the ICU nurse it kind of um, the support of like people in the program showed up in the least expected Mm. um, situations but like this isn't a story of AA or sobriety but that is definitely the magic of um, that program showing up for me when I needed it. So at that time you were 19 years old where were you living? I had been working on mega yachts around the world, 13 countries. So essentially I was, um, you know, living the yacht life. Okay. Um, but I was back home in my original hometown called uh, Seattle, Washington. So when we met, you were living in L.A. and you were yeah. mid-20s or so. And so that happened, I, I had no idea. I thought this happened like... Because I remember you putting a picture, or you sent me a picture of your broken back, or pictures on Instagram, right? <laughs> Didn't you send something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had another surgery mm. a couple years ago. Um, yeah, I had okay. to have the hardware removed. So the doctors at the time told you that you wouldn't be able to walk ever again, right? They told my parents while I was in a coma mm. that the probability of me ever walking again was uh, slim to none. And in the event I do wake up, which they didn't even know if I was going to wake up from the coma, but if I did wake up, I definitely wouldn't because they believed I had spinal cord injuries. Um, Or the break was significant. I wouldn't walk the same. How long long were you in a coma for? Almost two weeks. And, you know, the crazy thing... I, I don't remember anything that was happening during that time, but I woke up out of it in a very interesting way. <laughs> I, I was, uh, you know, 19, kind of like a pre-Madonna, just like very, very spoiled and had my like, you know, affliction with, uh, you know, whatever. So <laughs> I'm in a coma, don't know anything. And there's these three women that woke, me up and one had this red hair and there was an african-american lady who's like beautiful with this wild hair and there's the other one and they wouldn't stop laughing they just like were laughing and talking and bugging me and i woke up pulled the tubes because i had you know like breathing apparatuses and all these machines around me and i started pulling out tubes screaming i thought i had a room to myself I mean, like, that's ridiculous, no but, like, way. I that's what I was saying, and, I and like, nurses run in. I hadn't spoke or moved for two weeks, Oh my God. and they're, like, they came rushing in, and there was no one in my room. That was, who knows what that was? Who knows who they were, but they weren't of this world, and without that happening, who knows what would have happened? Like, I don't know if I would have ever woken up if those women weren't there bugging me what was their reaction when you told them to <laughs> shut up well there was nothing i was i i literally i it went from them laughing bugging me and pestering me yeah. to me just screaming they're like, like they're i like, thought i had a room to myself <laughs> yeah they're like girl i thought you were in a coma <laughs> <laughs> yeah they they weren't really listening to anything i was saying they were just everyone was just like you know, trying to get me to stop freaking out. Um, wow. And make sure I can, like, yeah. You don't, you don't Isn't remember. I, I, it's probably a really stupid question, but I'm going to ask it. But do you don't remember ever being, like, in a coma or, like, a deep sleep, do you? 
No, only only those women. And yeah. like I was wow. obviously still under yeah, I don't know what I don't know what other people's experiences were. But what was, mine I didn't have that white light. What was the last thing you remembered prior to going to the coma? The nurse sitting by my side saying I'm a friend of Bill W. Oh wow. Well, that's crazy. Now these were <laughs> co workers you were in the car with? No, they were just friends. Were you guys friends all intoxicated? I was not um, because I had newly mm-hmm. found sobriety. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, it wasn't like an, it, like no one was getting like hammered. It was just like, honestly, a really wholesome experience. We we're out on a logging road with a bonfire. Everything was magic and amazing until we got in the car. And the driver, he was obviously okay, huh? Mm-hmm. That's so crazy. He actually showed up to the hospital after I woke up from the coma. Mm-hmm. And when I was um, let out of ICU and just in a regular unit, he came to the hospital drunk, mm. crying. But he was a baby. We were so young. I mean, this is where we have to have compassion. Like, I've had to um, – my life was altered by that. Even though I'm walking and I survived, like, I'm in complete gratitude every single day that I'm – I am what I am today when everyone said I wouldn't walk or I wasn't going to wake up from the coma. So, like, I'm in gratitude and I have compassion for someone who was was clearly sick and suffering. And it's the human condition of suffering that we all exist in. So I've had to forgive him for changing my life in such a significant way. And I exist in chronic pain, and that's what brought the second surgery on. But... It's really important to, like, find a way to be grateful no matter what. Yeah, I think the bell goes off on all of us uh, in terms of being grateful. Um, And yours happened at a really young age. And so uh, you're right. That's a perfect way to look at that certain situation. Have you seen him or have you ever – what was – when was the last time you saw that guy? I – after he left the hospital – I never saw him again, oh, so wow. that was nearly 14 years ago. Wow. And he ran 14 miles to go and get the uh, first responder, right? Like Flagged down. That's yeah, crazy. he he ran as far as it took down the mountain to finally get someone um, to stop on the road, or, and he was uh, knocking on doors. and mm. it, Yeah, it was six and a half hours until someone yeah. came back. And he was never prosecuted or... Um, you know, he never got in trouble for the drinking and driving because it took him six hours to get with police officers who then realized the situation and why the accident happened. Mm-hmm. But uh, when they gave him uh, alcohol or breathalyzer, his limit was like one point below what was legally allowed. And then we were on forestry land. So ultimately he was never, um, there was no like, there's no DUIs or anything for him. I think his uh, punishment is um, is just like, you know, being responsible for harming his friends. And hopefully he's, you know, found his own sobriety or happiness and, like, doesn't behave like that anymore. Because yeah. I know it had to have. You know, like, I've experienced it on my side, but, like, I to be in his shoes, to know what he did to his friends, like... I don't. I can't yeah. even imagine what he's going through. Yeah, for sure. A for sure wake up call moment. Or if he even knows. Yeah, it's uh, you, yeah. you. You put that in the category of young and dumb. I remember my um, grandfather telling me when I was young. He told me, "Look, you go ahead, go get into trouble. Just don't get caught." You know. And there's so many of those situations where, when you're a kid, you think about it and you look back at it and you're like, "Man, if that, if I did that, and if I did that, if that happened, you know." And unfortunately, you go through some really stupid things when you're young, and you just you just hope, looking back, nothing bad happens. And sometimes that does happen. But thankfully, today mm-hmm. we're talking, which is 14 years ago, and things are, are great. And I'm happy to hear that. I had no idea it was that long ago. But listen, this got into your meditation, right? It's um, You got into the uh, yeah. Vapasana meditation? Did I say that right? <laughs> Vipassana. Vipassana, yeah, same thing. Um, 
it this is like one of those things when you're gone for like two weeks without a cell phone and can't talk to anybody, right? Yeah. Vipassana is one of the most ancient forms of meditation. And it is practiced all over the world. It's free for everyone. There's no cost to go and attend. They cook for you. They house you. And they is the Vipassana community. And it's all ran by volunteers of old students. Um, it teaches, it's like, um, okay, so it's 10 days in silence. So you, you have, uh, noble silence. There's no eye contact, no hand gestures. And like, you don't speak. And that's like the easiest part of it. But (laughs) the no speaking is literally the nicest and easiest part because you're sitting in meditation, um, from like. 4.35 4.35 in the morning until 8.30 at night. Oh, my God. It's so intense, and it's so incredible, and it's different for everyone. And it's I've done five sits now, and it's different every single time. And I think that when um, they say that you must, like have the seed planted three times before you arrive at Vipassana. And that means like you must hear about it. It must be shown to you. It must like arrive into your life. And once it does, there's no stopping you. If you're meant, if you're karmically meant to go to one of these courses and it's, it transforms your life in every way. That's 16 straight hours of meditation. I mean, are you literally like <laughs> well, I mean, like, like sitting there on the ground, just, just like closing your eyes? Or That's intense, <laughs> man. That is like crazy, crazy intense. I go on YouTube for like 20 minutes, and I'm like, man, this, this is like, it's fun. It's great. I feel amazing afterwards. But 16 hours, 10 days straight, like that's crazy. Well, I mean, you get breaks. You get, like, you meditate an hour at a time, have a five, ten-minute break, sometimes an hour break. You go eat, you go walk. You, I mean, it's not like you're there consistently meditating. I don't know, like, I don't think that, like, of course people do it, but um, the longest I sat was three hours straight. And where you go and your practice is definitely... Um, dictated by having strong determination and to get into that headspace and just battle the ego and and do it and it's i like i i wish i could give everyone this experience is there somebody talking there is there like like a teacher to you guys being students or is it you just being in your moment and, <laughs> and like just. No. So Gwenka is the teacher and, uh, okay. So I, I'm really not giving the pasta. I'm not explaining it well, um, for people. So Gwenka G is this guy who is the teacher, but he's no longer, <laughs> he's no longer alive. Um, so it's just these recordings of him and his wife or just him. And he does the chanting and he'll um, do discourses at night. But um, my first sit, I go and I was like, I, was, I literally, like, I was in L.A. I hadn't quite made the, like, move to just, like, leave everything yet. But I knew it was, like, coming. And I, I didn't know it was going to be one day I'd just like give everything away and leave but it was there was a shift in my consciousness and I was on the computer late at night looking for meditation courses and I was prepared to pay any amount of money go anywhere in the world like it didn't matter I was I wanted this and I was going to find it and I came across this website and it was you know Vipassana and it was free 
And like that weirdo in me is like, oh, this sounds like a cult. And that's even more appealing. So, but it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) It's not at all. But like, you know, it's a little interesting and like appealing and like whatever. So I'm like learning more about it. You have to apply. And I didn't read the whole website. I just knew that it was 10 days. Kind of skipped over all of the details. And then when I was applying to go, um, I got a response back and it was just like, you're on the wait list. And I was like, wait list? Like, what is this? And I completely forgot. And three months later, I get another email and it's like, you've been accepted. And I'm like, holy shit. Like, what, what am I doing? Where am I going? And I, I had, you know, I'm a flake. I'm an L.A. flaky chick. You are? And so I no. was. <laughs> you close. I was. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. I was. So I'm like, okay, I got to keep myself accountable, and I'm going to sign up for this ride share. So I, you know, need control. So I'm going to drive, not drive with anyone else, but I'll drive people there so I know I can't back out. I know I can't cancel and flake on all this. So I get, you know, I get these two guys, and we start driving to the desert. So because I was in Southern California, I went to 29 Palms, and uh, the closest location. On the way there, I was a smoker for 15 years. And I'm smoking, and I have my e-cigarettes, I have my nicotine gum, because, like, once we get to the course, you can't smoke. But, like, I had no intention of quitting smoking. I was just, like, going to, you know, use all the other alternative nicotine things. So I, uh, and then it dawned on me, while I'm driving with these two strangers in my car, and they're, like, not like me. They're not like my friends in L.A. They're, like, full-on meditator hippies mm. that are from – one was from New York, and one was – like, he was – now he was a therapist, but he had just been, like, six years in Afghanistan as an airborne ranger. Wow. So, like, he – yeah, like, these people come from all over the place, but they're, like – they weren't my people yet they weren't yet so we're going and it dawns on me that 10 years prior maybe eight years prior maybe 10 years prior right before I broke my back I was seeing this acupuncturist and I had um, a really close friend commit suicide and die and so I went to my acupuncturist to like get healing and she told me about the silent meditation that she went to and she literally said Stephanie, you're not ready right now, but eventually it will find you and you will go. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about this because I 100% didn't even put it together when I found it applied and got in the car. And it was only like an hour before I arrived when I heard my acupuncturist say this again. And I remembered everything and she was right. I wasn't ready then, but it found me and I went. So I give those guys my car keys. And I'm like, I'm probably not staying, but because I'm not a jerk, I don't want to leave you guys stranded in the desert. So I'll just find an alternative way home and you guys take my car, but I'm like, most likely I'll make it a couple days. And I, and the course was, I, for, and the course was for, was for <laughs> 10 days at the time too, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And you're like not allowed to leave. Like okay. you're allowed, you can, but it's high. Like they say, if you have any intentions of leaving before the course is completed, don't even bother going like don't don't start it if you can't finish it and I was like it that doesn't really apply to me I'm gonna do what I want and I I didn't make the first couple classes because of course I needed to sleep in and then I had all these physical things like I just don't feel good so I can't go it's 5 a.m and the assistant teacher comes and finds me and she's like okay here's the deal if you don't make it to the next meditation you have to leave and I was, like, so aggressive. And I was, like, what are you talking about? Like, the entitlement and, like, it just entitlement's a comfort. And everything that my ego was trying to grab onto was, like, happening. And it was the worst thing in, <laughs> in my entire life. So I finally was, like, okay, I'm going. I sat down. I hated all these people. I hated the fact that I was there. I didn't know why I was there. I didn't even know what this thing was. And I just sat. And then I had to let everyone know 
that like I was special. I had broken my back. I was in chronic pain and sitting on the stupid floor meditating with a hundred people was going to put me in the hospital. Like they didn't understand. I was special. My physical pain, my body was so messed up that like this is going to injure me. Yeah, that's 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 the initial that is the initial Stephanie that I met in Hollywood. Yep, (laughs) that is so you right there. (laughs) Oh, okay. So how did you get over the fact that that you weren't so much of a princess and everybody's like looking at you like? Huh? No, I (laughs) I demanded demanded. a chair. Yeah, I needed a chair. (laughs) So you were sitting in a chair. I needed. Oh yeah, they gave me a chair. They were like. They knew I was fighting my ego so hard that there I went and I was like, hey, I need a chair or I'm going to end up in a hospital. And they're like, we didn't know you had any medical conditions. It's like, of course I do. I broke my back 10 years ago and I'm dying from it. And so they're like, okay, we'll keep meditating. They didn't even acknowledge anything. They gave me the chair and they're like, you want to do it. Like, here you go. And they're like being this like, just like super like non-reactive, just like, here, here's your chair. Make it comfortable. This is a safe place. Just continue meditating. Mm-hmm. How so old? How old were you at the time, by the way? I don't know. Probably twenty-eight. Oh, okay. So about about ten years after your accident. Eight, ten years. Yeah. Okay. By the way, yeah. who who funds this? It's all by donations. To keep it pure, to keep politics and money out of it. It's what Buddha taught the world. It's about purity of the mind and, like, just, I mean, it's so complex, but it's so simple. Yeah. Okay, so Uh, this one one is at 29 Palms. Where were were the other two? The other ones I attended or the other locations just, like, they're everywhere in the the world. No, the ones that you attended, the the other two that you attended. Because I moved back to Washington, I now attend the one in Washington cool. State. It's been on Alaska. Yeah. So the first one that you went to, 29 Palms, you were you were uh, not digging it in the beginning. You got a rocking chair for your old ass to sit in. <laughs> and did you finally, like, get through the entire thing and take those guys home? No. That's not what happened at all. You so left? I get in the chair and I was more miserable. Oh, I stayed, but gosh. I got my stupid chair and I was I was like, this is even worse. So I got back on the floor. I got rid of all of the pillows I had brought and I literally sat on the floor with nothing and I meditated and I got inside the pain that I existed in. And it wasn't just in my back. It was in all of my body. And for whatever reason, because of the emotional and physical trauma of just life and the human condition of suffering, it like centered itself in my back. And for the first time since breaking my back and hurting myself, um, I, I found relief and I, I found a way to get through the pain by getting inside of it. And on the fourth day of meditating, I was in a discourse at the end of the day and it was really strange where I was, I was my nicotine gum and patches and everything else were still going strong. And all of a sudden I was sitting there four days into it and I could feel the nicotine entering my body in my arms from the patch. And I took the patch off and I've never had nicotine since I literally I had smoked for 15 years and through the pasta and I, I like, I, it completely dissolved my addiction to nicotine. Really? What? Yeah. Okay. Were you thinking about it when you were meditating? Like, are you thinking about things that are negative that you're trying to kick out? No, Hmm. you just sit. Or or, or you got a really good sensation. patch, or you re- you got a really good nicotine patch <laughs> <laughs> that, that you or got. Maybe just overdosed <laughs> on nicotine. Who knows? <laughs> and we're giving uh, no. yeah, we're giving the meditation the the full uh, credit here. Do you meditate uh, every day now? I do an hour in the morning and an hour at night. Wow. And are you are you meditating to somebody that's in your ear, or are you just closing your eyes and going to town? You know, it's not a 
brain exercise. Mm-hmm. So there's no visual, there's no audio, there's nothing. You enter, you can uh, meditate with Goenka as chanting for like the beginning, like it's a chant for like a couple moments, and then you go into your meditation for an hour, and then it closes with uh, more chanting and then giving meta. You do meta meditations where that's just like giving love and healing and joy to everyone and it's uh are you sitting there with your eyes open or closed so you're sitting and like a traditional meditation Mm -hmm. like lotus or you know legs crossed Mm -hmm. or whatever Mm -hmm. like whatever's comfortable but Mm -hmm. typically your legs are crossed your hands are closed your eyes are closed and you are sitting observing sensation and we exist in a pattern of craving and aversion and so to just sit and observe Mm -hmm. whatever thought whatever feeling whatever sensation you're having without reaction and to maintain a neutral existence do you get Um, distracted do you get distracted by noise if there's noise around you background noise of course but is that sometimes you're so deep yeah well, sometimes, like, there was one, <laughs> one time I was in meditation, um, there's about 100 people who go, and, like, you cry. Sometimes you, you're shown things. It's kind of like ayahuasca. It's kind of like, you know, because you're dealing with the traumas that are so deep inside of you, um, stored in your nervous system. So, like, while you're observing sensation, you can come through your body and find some sort of blockage that is stored trauma. And, I mean, it's science-based like it's not just like hippie stuff it's like we literally store this in ourselves and our nervous system and sometimes that stuff comes up and people start really feeling it and experiencing it as if it's happening all over um it's very 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 intense at times and there was one I'm where there was this girl and she was hysterically crying and I started crying because I knew the pain she was feeling. It may have been a different situation, but the same pain, the same suffering. And I just started crying and, you know, you can't open your eyes, you can't move, you can't like do anything. You're just sitting in meditation and letting it pass, observe and let it pass. And and then a couple more people started crying. It was like a chain reaction. All these people were crying. And then... The day we, <laughs> the day we were able to talk again, because you go ten days, this girl who it was, she was like, "Oh my God, you guys, I'm so sorry that that happened on day whatever." She was actually just laughing. She wasn't crying. <laughs> the guy next to her was farting, <laughs> and she couldn't stop laughing. Like, <laughs> Jesus. In my head, this chick's having like the worst experience of her life, and right. it's all so awful and painful. But no, she's laughing because the guy's like ripping it up. <laughs> and <laughs> so, do you so, do? You yeah. say you meditate morning and night for an hour each. Are you meditating by yourself or or in a class? You know, I meditate by myself often, but it's better with others. And so we have a Seattle Vipassana Center that people meet. It's open 24-7. And, I mean, it's an office space dedicated to meditation. And they play a recording of Guenka. And people go. And sometimes there's like a half-day sit and we get together and do it. Um, The people that you meet during your course it's like a family you can be anywhere in the world and find someone who does the pasna and you're immediately connected like family so i love being able to meditate with other meditators like it's a different experience but definitely i i do both alone or with others how important but are I don't your practice yeah go ahead I don't, uh, you take a vow not to practice any other forms of meditation once you begin this practice. I see. And you live by precepts. How important are your breathing techniques? Well, we call it anapana. And breath work is not, it brings you back to focus if your mind is, um, if you're struggling to meditate and you can't, control your thoughts and or you you just can't get into it Mm -hmm. you do a 
few deep breaths and breathe out, but um, this isn't a practice of breath work and or meditating on that because that, again, I believe is more geared towards brain exercises versus mm-hmm. actually meditating. Mm-hmm. How about yoga? You mix yoga in your life? Um, no, I don't do yoga. I do Pilates. I've never done Pilates. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, that's what they say. Okay, let's get into your chef life here. Uh, you do some private chef okay. stuff along with uh, some some full-time gigs too, right? Are you still doing the yacht stuff or no? Yeah, my mm. boss has a yacht and I cook on it. How often are you <laughs> on there? Friday till Monday every week. And then I cook at his house and then I do some other stuff when I am able to actually like not just work on the boat so is is your boss out like every weekend or he's renting his yacht out for others no we don't charter uh he the family uses it on the weekend where where they go So we just like we go to the san juan islands or like this weekend it's the seafair and that's like a huge thing in seattle where like the navy ships and the blue angels it's a massive party. Macklemore, the singer, will be on our boat this weekend. Nice. That will be fun. Yeah. Um, what about that Below Deck show? Is it kind of <laughs> like that? <laughs> it's definitely like that and worse. Um, funny story with that is I was in the back of a limo with a guy eight years ago, mm-hmm. telling him, you know, I had been a private chef on Yas already a few years, and I was like, I got the best idea. We're in L.A., best idea ever for a reality show. And I tell him, we need to start filming on these yachts. But back in the day, like, that was taboo. Like, these people, mm-hmm. the richest of the rich, don't want to have TV crews on their boat. Like, that would be unheard of. And so this is my idea that asshole was on the first two episodes of no. Below Deck. Yes. <laughs> Shut up. And so I'm, I swear to God, I was so pissed. I, like, boycotted watching that show. I hated it with a passion. Like, how dare he steal my idea? But I was 24, 25 years old telling <laughs> some bigwig producer in the back of a limo, like, hey, did I you, had a great idea. Did you know who he was? Well, I knew he was a TV producer, and that's why I was telling him my great idea. Right. But, like, you don't do that. It was, like, that was the dumbest thing ever. But who would have ever thought, okay, last summer, or actually it was last January, I get a phone call from Bravo. And they're they're asking me if I'm interested in uh, participating in that TV show. And I said, look it, I am the original creator and founder <laughs> of this show and that's going to be known if I'm on this and they're like hold on wait and these are just the casting directors at this point they're like what are you talking about and I tell them this guy that had happened he stole it so not only are you guys paying me to be on the show but I want all of my royalty checks to come like starting soon so they um they put me forward and I flew to Florida I was down there and, you know, I'm like not drinking and living a healthy life. I'm a holistic nutritionist and private chef. And so, like, there's not a lot of drama. There's not a lot of stuff that will get me reactive. And, you know, that's not really good for reality TV. So I know that I have to be in Florida until flying to the med to meet the boat. And there, I'm working, like... 10 hours a day for these people, for Bravo. I'm doing my STCW, so I'm doing firefighting. I'm, like, exhausted. And then, like, six hours after that, I'm doing these crazy interviews with, um, like, police psychologists. And, like, they're giving me all these tests. I'm like, this is really not the appropriate time to be seen if I'm nuts. After 10 days of firefighting and, like, water drills, like, I'm losing my mind. Then I... So... I was going to be the first female chef on that show. I'm down there. And the day before I'm flying out, which was a Friday, 
I just asked for one day off. Like, I got to have one day off. I'm flying to France. I need a break. And they were like, no, like, the charter comes on Saturday. You have to do the physical, like, here. And then literally hours before the flight, they say, wait, you're no longer coming on the show because the stewardess just stepped up and is killing it. And she's going to be our chef. And I was like, that, yeah. But, like, it was definitely a good thing that I didn't go. I was so exhausted, and I was probably going to make a complete fool out of myself. And I don't know about how they, I don't know if they actually felt comfortable with me saying I was the original creator of that show. <laughs> well, I'm sure you would have been really difficult, too, because you would have been like, yeah, yeah, whatever, this is my show, I'm the one who started this thing. <laughs> You'd totally be like that uh, that Hollywood girl come out of you throughout the entire Well, you know, it's the truth. It's yeah. the truth. It is my show. I did create it, but I wonder how many other crew people like actually had this idea in their head. I don't know. Hey, but what about that what story? What about that story you told me about those really famous people? Um, not going to name any names, but the time you <laughs> filled in as a chef, and kind of a creepy, a little bit creepy, um, but you filled in, and he was leaving with his posse. You were coming in to fill in, and then what happened? Oh, that. <laughs> <laughs> you think it's creepy? I mean, it's... It, I don't know if it's... Okay, can I say this story? You want me to say this story so it sounds more creepy? I kind of loved it. Well, look, I feel like I'm, I've am i got some of that in me too because I think at the time <laughs> he's making sure that you're like a good person and you've got good energy and you're good people. Here, I'll, I'll tell the story, okay, tell Stephanie. The story. I'll tell the story. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, this is a one-man show, obviously, <laughs> so I'll just... Uh, yeah. So Stephanie goes to this house to a really famous person's house. It's a power couple. Uh, And she shows up to fill in for this chef who is pregnant at the time, and she's going to take some time off, so Stephanie's going to fill in for this pregnant chef. And so when she comes in to the gate that opens for her, this dude's going out in his car with, like, four of his boys and, like, three other cars. And so you're like, oh, there he goes. Yeah, like the full... Yeah. Yeah, Full it's, on, but it's like, intense, and there's, like, secret service guys dressed all in black with, like, earpieces and, like, blacked-out SUVs. Crazy. You can't see in, like, the real deal. Go ahead. Finish. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you were telling this story. I was just adding it. it yeah, so, so like, Stephanie then... Anything. Okay, so Stephanie then walks into the house, and she's, like, getting familiar with the kitchen and everything else, and then I think the famous uh, female was around, too, at the time, right? Did you meet her? Well, it's his wife. It's her. Yeah. No, but I mean, she was uh, there, right? There with yeah. Yeah. Okay, she so was. she was there, with and Vogue. then all of a sudden, within like six seconds, this dude, the famous guy who was leaving with his posse, shows up mm-hmm. like right behind her, and like, 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 like in your business, right? And making sure you're like good people, because he's like, hey, you're in my house, you're working for me, I got to make sure you're good people, right? Who knows what he was doing? Yeah. But he was exiting the compound, and within moments, he had gotten back on property, back into the house, his cell phone up to his ear. Not really sure if anyone was on if anyone was on the other side of the phone, but his <laughs> phone was to his face, and he's staring me down, walking around, walking around me, just staring feeling it like who is this what's her deal what's her vibe and i i wasn't really sure what to say or do so i kind of just stood still (laughs) and smiled (laughs) like what the fuck is this (laughs) but it was kind of amazing because if we did say who it was it would all kind of make sense yeah 100 (laughs) percent. totally totally agree yeah everybody be like the story wouldn't be interesting anymore if you said who it was um, what what about being a woman in the industry? Challenging? Yeah, yeah. Like, um, it's interesting. Where I don't know. I've been a chef as long as like I've had a career, so fourteen years. I um, I don't know any other industry, but I. This is one that's still predominantly ran by males 
And the women who are in the chef world, the restaurant industry, it takes a different type of human to even exist as a chef. Um, and like the physical, like, it's just like, it's the most intense thing. But as a female, it's, it's a beast and it's you have to really learn how to maintain your I don't know how to explain it being a professional but still being a woman and there's different expectations and I've worked in Michelin star restaurants to the private world and it's a it's a delicate dance you have to play as a female chef you have to be better than anyone else you're working with um that's like you have to be stronger faster harder working like it's well, really interesting and you and you ran into some perverts in your day too right and still do yeah, yeah. definitely yeah yeah <laughs> that part is not cool because that's that that's the part that you know, when, when you're not keeping it professional um, and you run into that stuff and you're probably in a difficult position to be in because you want to report it, but then you don't. Uh, you probably enjoy the work, but then again, you don't. So what do you do, right? I mean, people live dynamic lives. There's a lot of these crazy genius minds that, like... You know, by default, they're very successful, wealthy humans, and um, they expect to have everything. And why shouldn't they? Except for the fact, you know, sometimes, like, a human that works for you isn't, like, something that it's not, um, I mean, like, it's just a different world. And I think the hashtag Me Too has that. Uh, quieted a lot of things and put a lot of people in check so like at least like the restaurant industry it's, it's changed it dramatically and I don't even know if it's in a good way where being on the line working your ass off and like it's so hard and you're like it's you're in the trenches with your team and like hashtag me too as much as I support it and I 100% believe that it's helped a lot of people in a lot of different industries but like now like it it removes a really special part of being a chef in the restaurant scene and um and it almost makes it worse because then like people walk on eggshells around the females in the industry or um i don't know is that yeah yeah yeah. is that something you dealt with recently um or have you seen it improve since since that movement no I mean, it, it's in my world, like, no matter what, if your boss grabs your ass, there is no telling anyone. There is nothing you can do unless you want to get blacklisted because oh. it is such a small group of people. I mean, worked for the top of the top. And when you get to that place, you, it's, a, you know, you just, it's all about maintaining your own boundaries and being a professional no matter what. And it's a scary world, but ultimately I love what I do. I love feeding people and healing through what I cook for others. And uh, that's like my mission is like give them good things to like encourage healthy, positive changes in people's lives. What about that famous producer? Yeah, what about that famous producer that flew out to see you who wanted to write a, well, he was going to produce a movie about your story, and then at the end of the story, he was going to turn you into a prostitute. <laughs> and that quickly... Yeah, that was... Di- you know, yeah. I'm going to name names on this one. Okay, <laughs> let's do it. No. Let's I, do it. Well, maybe not. But, uh, no, this is more, you know... So, I think I've realized... Um, there's a part of me is like I'm a storyteller and I have I've lived a life that's pretty incredible and like a worth a life story about and occasionally people will hear something 
And this guy did. He heard something that he thought was incredible, and he wanted to write a story about it. Seven years after he had, in passing, heard a story I had told in um, in a meeting that that was, you know, you're not allowed to be taking notes. So I had people share. It was in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, uh, I had just gotten off a flight where a woman and her husband sat next to me. I was flying home from Italy, you know, in this jet-setting life of mine when I was younger. Um, this man walks on a plane, and he had this really strong odor. And I was like, I'm in first class. This guy's going to smell like that? Are you kidding me? No. Like, you know, that girl you met, that that girl. So that girl was also really afraid of flying, and she was sober. So, like, there was no getting hammered on the plane, and this guy smelled like shit. So I'm silently, like, hating these people sitting next to me. And... The wife's like, you know, change your shirt. You stink. So oh. at least she, she's doing something about it. It was bad. It was Gross. awful. And within within an hour of leaving Rome, the guy goes into cardiac arrest. And they're sitting right next to me. Shit. And he goes into cardiac arrest. And they they call on the, the speaker, like, is there any doctors on board? And there was seven medical professionals on that flight. Seven. Mm. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. When is there ever yeah. seven yeah. medical professionals on one plane? Yep. Yeah, so they have, they, like, he had, you know, his cardiac arrest, and they revived him. He was sitting in the chair. They don't land the plane. They don't take any, like, emergency, like, steps to, like, rerouting, getting us to somewhere else. We're still headed to L.A., nonstop headed to LA and he seemed fine his wife and him were sitting there everything was fine and two hours later he goes into cardiac arrest again the guy dies what and full-on dies he dies on the airplane and I'm literally sitting next to the wife and they've moved him to where the galley on the plane is you know whether well, stewardess is like preparing stuff, they had moved him while he was in like serious cardiac arrest. They moved him, um, the seven professionals moved him into the galley area, laid him on the floor, and they were performing um, CPR. And I, mm. there was a kid who kept on opening the curtain, and I'm screaming at him, Basta, Basta, like, stop, like, mm-hmm. give the man some privacy. He was like, my dad's one of the doctors. And I was like, kid, sit the fuck down. Like, get out of that. Like, <laughs> you can't do that. And then the wife's sitting next to me, and I look at her, and I grab her hand. And this is one of the first flights I was sober for. And thank God I was, because any other flight, by three hours into it, I would have been shit-faced, drooling on myself, or who knows what. So I'm sitting next to her, holding her hand, praying with her and telling her it's going to be okay. Like, it's okay. She isn't. Or maybe, you know, whatever. He he passed. He is okay. But um, it was really, really sad. And she was crying. And she asked the pilot not to stop, not to land because then she would have to deal with getting his body back to the homeland of like you know america and she didn't want to do that she just wanted to get him home and i so we went you know like i guess it was like five to seven hours left on the flight they had turned down the ac to the point where we were all freezing but no one was going to complain no one was going to say a damn word about it because you know it's preserve the body that is on the plane and um no one knew beyond the first class area what was happening and i just sat with the wife the rest of the time holding her hand not saying anything and when we got off when the plane landed the paramedics um at the airport and the police got on and took her and the husband off and that was the first moment where I started crying because he was the one who carried the luggage that um, carry on 
onto the plane. And I'm like, and they were older. They were like in their 60s, 70s. And who was going to carry the bags for her? And I, you know, that was like symbolic for a lot more than just the luggage they brought on the plane. But like you lose your partner and like, you know, who's going to be there to like carry on with the life and like everything you've created. And like, she just lost something so significant, like lost her partner in life. And when you're in the sky and airplane, it doesn't matter what walk of life you come from. Like we're all vulnerable. We're all the same. And it was like the most incredible experience, but it was really, really, really sad. And so I didn't know how to deal with that sober. And I went straight from LAX to a meeting, an AA meeting. And that's what I did as someone in the program. Like I would go and I talked about it and I just like told the story. I just, (laughs) this just happened. And the guy sitting in the meeting was Stephen uh, Seymour, what is his name? Stephen Hoffman, whatever. Um, he's passed now, but um, Philip Seymour Hoffman right. is an actor. Right. And they're from New York. His brother, uh, Gordon, was sitting, you know, sorry, sorry to give up anyone's anonymity, but he's sitting there taking fucking notes of this horrible trauma mm. I just experienced. Seven years, I didn't even know he was doing that. Seven years later, he gives me a message on Facebook. Hey, uh, I know we don't know each other, but I just wanted to know if I could tell your story. Mm. And I was like, what? And that was the story. He asked for permission. And so I essentially helped him write a screenplay. And it was um, it was funded by his brother, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And it was um, his, before his brother died. He gave Gordy um, the means to produce and write, direct, whatever, uh, play. And and that was what my story was what he decided to create that play on. Holy shit. And he wrote it. And, you know, it was really pathetic how he took something that could have been so spiritual and just like... Could have been really cool and he botched it and needed to wow factor it at the very end and made me into a prostitute <laughs> and it was like i'm sitting he had been working on this for months he flies up from la to seattle and does the play read with you know hired actors and i'm sitting there and i literally last page i couldn't believe that he had done that it was like a slap in the face but I don't get it, though. So what, said, what was the point? The, what was the point of that? Yeah. The point of making me a prostitute? Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. But I took it as a complete insult yeah. and a slap in the face. Um, he briefly touched on, you know, the whole, like, my whole backstory, literally back uh, breaking my backstory. And so, like, it was me. Everything about that. He didn't change the characters. It was me he was talking about and me he, who he called something and it was really strange that that's his way of taking creative liberties instead of making it i like i don't know well, it's, ho- it's, ho- it's hollywood I killed my baby <clears throat> this yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, hollywood it's, bullshit. it's absolute hollywood toxic hollywood stuff um but uh, we should get a group together and maybe write this story and put it into a play or a short <laughs> film or something. Seriously, your story is freaking amazing. The thing, the cool part is that you're still e- extremely young, so you've got so many more stories to come. Good. It's all going to be good, positive stuff. Yeah. Y- you know, it's funny. Today, about an hour and a half ago, you texted me and said, you know, Mike, I'm just not feeling good right now. I am just <laughs> don't have much energy right now. And you were so close to flaking on me, and you said, how about midday tomorrow when I have my coffee? And I'm like, dude, I can't do it midday tomorrow. You're going to do this right now. So I want to know what you're like when you have energy, because everything you spit out today, (laughs) seriously, Stephanie, you were amazing. Thank you so much for telling your story. This was as amazing as it gets. You have some awesome, awesome things to tell. Thanks for letting me be on your show.
man, that was fun. That was so good. It's crazy how long I've known her, and I didn't know all of that uh, this entire time. I didn't know she had that kind of story. I know she went through some things, but that kind of story, uh, which is cool, because this is why I'm doing this. Uh, I'm finding more things about my own friends than I ever have. And at the same time, you guys learning about other people's lives, and they're opening up to us uh, so we can all learn, grow, and get educated and, and be better people. Uh, you can follow her on social media, Prana Wellness Chef. Uh, that's on Instagram, and then her website is pranawellnesschef.com. You go on her website, you're going to want to eat her website because everything on that website is delicious. She'll do private parties if you want as well, but right now she's doing that yacht stuff, and uh, if you want, hit her up, follow her. She's awesome. She's great. She's doing a great job. Listen, if any of you think that there's somebody that'd be interesting on the show, please let me know because... That would obviously interest me. You think they have an interesting story? You please let me know. That'd be great. I am Mike Gabriel. This is Miked Up Pod. Follow me on Instagram, Miked Up Pod. Until next time, folks. No wasted days. Good night, everybody. <laughs>